Well, good morning. Uh, it's, it's such a delight to be here with you once again this morning. Um, if you're new or if you're a guest, I just want to in particular say welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, this is a good morning to be here. Every Sunday morning is a good morning to be here. Um, but as, as I've prepared for the message for this Sunday, I, I have felt a, a particularly heavy weight um, because this morning we're talking about Jesus. Now, we talk about Jesus every morning, right? And the gospel, that is the good news of Jesus, is proclaimed every time we gather through, through song, through prayer, uh, hopefully through the sermons. But, but this morning we're talking about Jesus. Uh, we, we've been in the midst of a series right now called The Story, a sermon series where we are taking the whole story of the Bible because we believe that the Bible tells one coherent story from beginning to end, from creation to new creation. And we've broken up this story into six different parts, what we are calling the six acts of the drama of Scripture. And, and we, we began several weeks ago in the beginning. And as, as you can see, we have, we have these symbols that, that represent and help us to wrap our minds around what's going on in each of these acts of the drama of Scripture. And so we begin with Act 1, creation. In, in Genesis 1, we see this, this picture of this God who, who comes down and creates all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so like a, like a king establishing his kingdom, God speaks and all things come into existence. And, and as he's creating his, his world, his creation, uh, it, it becomes very clear that th this is a good thing. This is a very, very good thing. And at the center of God's creation is human beings. You and me, what, what the Bible refers to as his image bearers, those who are created in the image of God. And what we learn in this story is, is that God created us for a particular vocation. He created us as his image bearers to to know him, to love him, to serve him, to delight in him, to worship him, so that we might increasingly be able to reflect who he is to the world around, to others and to the rest of creation. We were created for worship and for witness. This is what it means to be human. And at the end of, of, of God's creation, he takes a step back and he says, this is, this is really good. And so act one, creation. God creates this good creation and he comes down to live with it. But then we go to the next part of the story, act two. And we step into the first book of the Bible, but chapters two and three. And this is where everything goes wrong, which is hopefully self-explanatory in the big X that you can see right up there. This is where sin enters the picture. And in that iconic story in the garden, what we discussed a couple weeks ago was how Adam and Eve decided to not trust God's voice, but 
their own. And they decided to, to remove God from the throne of their hearts and put themselves in his place. And we talked about how this isn't just a, a story about something that happened a long time ago, but this is actually our story. And it was through this act of obedience that sin entered the world, like, like cancer spreading its way through a body. Sin has infected God's entire creation, and it is not the way it was supposed to be. And so we all have this proclivity to put ourselves on the thrones of our hearts. And, and, and what we discussed also was the devastating consequences of sin, not least of all death itself and the death of all of the most fundamental relationships that we have, a relationship with God, with ourselves, with one another, and the rest of creation. Sin is the reason why, when we look around, we notice that there are things in this world and in our lives that are not the way they're supposed to be. And the big question at this point in the story is, what is God going to do? What's God going to do? Is he going to take his creation project, crinkle it up, and throw it in the cosmic trash can? Or something else? And as we moved on to Act 3 in the biblical story, what we, what we discovered is that God decides to introduce himself to a man whom we know today as Abraham. And he makes a promise to Abraham and Abraham's people. He says, Abraham, through you and your people, through your descendants, I'm going to bless the entire world, all of creation. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the entire world. And, and he not only gave them a promise, but he gave them a vocation, a job to do as well. And that is to deal with sin and to reveal God to the world. They, they were to reflect God to the world. They were to fulfill humanity's original vocation. But as we learned last week, as Matt preached and did a phenomenal job of unfolding over and summarizing over 900 chapters in the Bible, <laughs> that was Matt's impossible task last week, and he did a great job. If, if you didn't hear last week's sermon, you should go online and, and watch it. Matt beautifully told the story of Israel. The majority of the Bible. And what we discovered is, is that the people of Israel failed time and time again. They failed to deal with sin and they failed to reveal God to the world. And instead, all too often, they chose to worship other gods. The great tragedy in the biblical story up to this point is that the very people who were supposed to be the solution became a part of the problem. The very people through whom God's healing was supposed to go out to the world became infected by the disease themselves, the disease of sin. The story of Israel is our story as well. And once again, God is left with a predicament. Is he going to fulfill his ancient promises to the people of Israel? And if so, when? Is God going to fulfill his promise to Israel to bless the entire world through them 
to restore his creation project or not? Is he going to make good on his promise regardless of the cost? And, and as we come to the, the uh, text that I'm going to read here in just a moment, uh, what, what we find is a situation in which God has been silent for 400 years. For 400 years, God is silent, and, and the people of Israel are not in a good place. And the question on their mind is, when is God going to fulfill his promise? When is the time going to come? And so with that question in mind, I'd like to read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Would you pray with me? Father, as we pause now and, and come to this climactic moment in the, in the biblical story, uh, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. Help us to hear from you clearly. Help us to see you clearly. Please remove any distractions from our hearts, from our minds. Uh, we, we love you, Father. We pray in your Son's name and by your Spirit. Amen. Now, indulge me for a moment. Let's, let's slip into, just for a second, our first century Jewish sandals. Okay, imagine, imagine that you are living as a first century Jew in the historic country of Israel. More than anything, you are painfully aware of the fact that your land, your country, is under Roman occupation. And in fact, this has been the case for a long time, going back seven, eight hundred years, when the Assyrians moved into town and conquered the people of Israel. After the Assyrians came Babylon. After the Babylonians came the Persians. After the Persians came the Greeks. And, and now it's the Romans. And you are burdened by taxation. Everywhere you look, you're reminded of who's in charge. And, and while your faith tells you that God is indeed reigning as king in heaven, it sure doesn't seem like he's in charge here on earth. The Romans are in charge. Caesar is king. And, and so with, with all of your people, you have this longing this expectation, this hope that one day God will come, that one day his kingdom will arrive and he will fulfill his ancient promises that he made to Abraham so long ago. And so when Jesus then comes announcing that God's kingdom is here, he would have been speaking a language that would have gotten everyone's attention. And they would have had all sorts of assumptions about what he meant by that. And so what we find 
in not just the Gospel of Mark, but each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is this, is this incredible story, this announcement, this claim that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God's kingdom has come. That in the person of Jesus, in his story, we see that God's kingdom has come. And yet, here's the thing. God's kingdom comes in a way that no one, no one expected. In a way that's utterly surprising. And so to begin, what we find is that God's kingdom comes in the life of Jesus. And in the life of Jesus, we find many things that no one expected. And so, for example, Jesus taught that the kingdom of God was coming. And, and he taught about the kingdom. And he taught in stories and sermons. And, and in these teachings, what became very clear very quickly is that his vision of the kingdom of God was very different than all of the other options in his day. There were, there were four basic, what we might call, political or religious parties or groups or ideologies of the kingdom in Jesus' day. There were the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that the way of the kingdom was through, the kingdom would come through strict and rigid conformity to external rules and regulations. And then Jesus shows up and said, well, that, you know, that, that's not actually the way of the kingdom. The kingdom will not come through strict and rigid conformity to rules and regulations. No, the, the kingdom is a way, of, a way of inner heart transformation. God doesn't just care about what you do, which is obviously very important. He cares about who you are. He cares about the motives of your heart. And then you have the Sadducees, another group. And they had their own ideas about the kingdom of God. And they were the ones who were in power, so to speak. They, they were the bureaucrats. They were the ones who ran the temple. And so they had an arrangement with Rome. And they also benefited from that arrangement. And so their perspective says, hey, when it comes to the kingdom of God, let's not rock the boat with Rome. Status quo is just fine, thank you. We're able to worship in our temple. We have relative peace. Let's just keep things the way that they are. This should be the way of the kingdom. And then you watch Jesus. And the first time during his ministry, he strolls into the temple, he's flipping over tables. <laughs> and he's saying, no, guys, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, right? But this has become a den of robbers. Jesus challenged the corrupt systems of oppression in his day. He had a different vision of the kingdom than the Sadducees. But there was another group, a group called the Zealots. And these were the folks who believed that God's kingdom would come through violent rebellion. These were the folks that believed that God would take charge once again of his creation, once every single last one of us picked up a sword, found a Roman soldier, and rammed it through his stomach. That, that's how the kingdom will come. And Jesus came. And he said, friends, the kingdom, the kingdom of God is not one of violence. The kingdom is not going to come 
by killing our enemies. It's going to come by loving them and by forgiving them. There was one other group, one other group in Jesus' day called the Essenes. Now, we don't read about the Essenes in the New Testament. They didn't make it into the New Testament because they were extreme separationists. We only know about them from other historical uh, sources. But the Essenes were kind of like the Pharisees on steroids. They believed that if they could just be as holy as possible, that, that they could usher in, usher in God's kingdom. And so they separated themselves from society and lived in the desert in a little community because they didn't want to taint, be tainted by the impurity of rubbing shoulders with the dregs of society in the cities like the tax collectors and prostitutes. And Jesus came, and who did he hang out with? Tax collectors and prostitutes. Jesus had a very different vision of the kingdom of God than everyone else. He taught and he showed what it looked like for God to be king. But it wasn't just his teachings that surprised people. It was the power and authority of his life as well. The power and authority of his life. There was a story of, of a man who was paralyzed from birth being brought to Jesus. And Jesus, upon looking at him, said this. He said, sir, your sins are forgiven. Now, there were some religious leaders observing this happening. There was a bit of a crowd around this event. And, and as soon as some of these religious leaders heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven, they immediately thought, who does this guy think he is? Only God can forgive sins, right? And, and even with that, through the proper channels, you had to go to the temple, participate in the correct rituals, and, and here's this guy saying, your sins are forgiven. Who does he think he is? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, listen, guys, okay, it's easy. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven, right? But so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, check this out. And then he tells this man to stand up, and he heals him. Jesus demonstrated a divine authority and power. And he did this not only by forgiving sins, but also by healing diseases and sicknesses. He restored sight to several people who were blind. He healed people of leprosy, a horrible skin disease. He healed people of epilepsy. It's like anywhere Jesus went, it was like there was this wake behind him, as if all of the things in this world that are not the way they're supposed to be, all of the twisted and corrupted consequences of sin were becoming undone. Right? Jesus exercised authority over the forces of nature. Right? He, he walked on water. That's not normal. At, at one point, he was in a boat and there was a storm. Matt mentioned this earlier. There was a storm swirling about. And his disciples, many of whom were fishermen by trade, they were terrified. They knew what a bad storm was. And Jesus stood up and he, he addressed the wind and the waves and he said, shut up. Okay, now that's, that's not word for word what it says in my Bible, but that's in what I like to call the MF 
the Michael's Fun version of the Bible. But in essence, that's what he said. He addressed the wind and the waves, and he said, be quiet, be still. And they obeyed him, right? And, and his disciples who were in the boat observing all of this, they had seen him do amazing things, but nothing like this. And they, this event left them asking one another, like, who is this? Jesus also exercised authority over evil spirits, over demonic forces who at different points in time in Jesus' ministry had in some way enslaved people, possessed people. And there's this pattern. Anytime Jesus encountered someone who had been possessed by an evil spirit, the minute they see Jesus, they become terrified. And they flee. Who is this man? Jesus' life was surprising because he taught this vision of the kingdom that could not be fit into any of the categories on offer in Jesus' day. He also exercised the divine authority and power as if the very presence and power of God were uniquely concentrated in his very person. But there's one more thing about his life that was surprising, and that is the beauty of his faithfulness. See, Jesus not only taught what it looked like to live life as if God were king, to live a God-ruled life, he lived it. And he lived it perfectly. Like, if you're ever wondering what would it look like if someone always did what God wanted, look at Jesus. And in fact, I, I would encourage you at some point to just pick up one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read through it, and then notice what Jesus teaches, and then watch how he lives. Read what he has to say about sexual ethics. Jesus has a pretty high, pretty high bar. And then watch how he treats women. Women felt safe with Jesus. They felt safe with him, including those women who had every reason in the world to never trust another man. Read what he has to say about judging others. And then watch who he hangs out with. Watch who he spends time with. Watch how he interacts with those who occupied the lowest rung of the social ladder in Jewish culture especially the prostitutes and the tax collectors. Read what Jesus has to say about forgiveness, particularly when it comes to forgiving and loving one's enemies. And then notice what he says to his enemies, literally while they are killing him. Through his teachings, authority, and the beauty of his faithfulness, Jesus declares and displays what it means to live your whole life under the reign and rule of God. And it's beautiful. Like, and, I, and I think most of us, if we're honest, most of us, when we, when we see this, we, we have a longing, a craving deep in our hearts to live a life like this. Even when we fail, and we all do, 
Even when greed or lust or selfishness or laziness or pride or whatever gets the better of us, isn't there a part of you deep down that longs for something more? That longs to be better? That knows, you know deep in your bones you were created to be a part of something so much bigger and more beautiful than the way things are. Several years ago, uh, I, I had an opportunity to serve with a, a ministry uh, called Just Love. And, and this, is a, this was really just a group of women, many of whom were a part of my church at the time and a couple other local churches, who, who would get together about once every two to three months, and in one evening, they would visit you know, three to four strip clubs. And, and what they would do is they would they would arrive, and, uh, and the women, they, they had established relationships with the owners of these clubs, who were on good terms with the owners. They had arranged all of this. They, they would enter the strip club, often bringing cookies for the bouncers. It's always a good idea. Uh, and, and they would be invited to go into the back changing room. And their mission, their purpose, was to show just love to the women who worked in these clubs. And so they would just hang out back there, sometimes bringing gifts, if it was around Christmas time, and they would get into conversations with these women, and they would get to hear their stories. And sometimes they would get to pray for them, and sometimes they would exchange numbers, and sometimes they would get together even outside of their working hours. And, and on one particular night, and by the way, when I would go with them, I would stay in the car, uh, I would not go into the, to the clubs with them. Anytime men would join them on these trips, our, our job was to stay in the car and to pray while they went in. And, and on one particular night, uh, we made a stop that, that we weren't planning to make initially. And it was a stop at a massage parlor. Because word on the street was that this massage parlor wasn't actually a massage parlor but was rather a front for sex trafficking activity. And so, so staying in the, I stayed in the car and, uh, and a couple women from the group went into this massage parlor. And, and immediately when they walked in, uh, a woman came to the front desk who spoke very broken English and was very apprehensive about these strange women being here. They're not the usual clientele. Uh, and, and it also became very clear very quickly that this woman at the desk was not going to let anyone in the back. And we, we assumed as much. Uh, but, but as the women from our church turned around and began to leave, this woman from behind the desk came out around the side and, and grabbed the hands of one of the women from our church and looked at her in the eyes and said, I know why you're here. I know that God sent you to do his work. And she said, and, and one day, I'm going to be doing his work too. Who knows what sort of harrowing situation 
this woman found herself in. And yet she had this longing, this craving, this desire. She knew she was created for something more. And, and isn't that the case for each and every one of us? We know we are created for something more, something better, something beautiful. And when we look at Jesus, when we look at the life that he lived, what we see is what that more is. We see a life of perfect, beautiful faithfulness. We see the kingdom of God. We see what it looks like when God is king. And it's beautiful. But here's the problem. However much we desire to live as God intended, we're ultimately unable. It's, it's like, like, like the force of gravity, the presence of sin in the world and in our lives pulls us down, which leads us to the next surprise of Jesus' story. And that is that God's kingdom arrived not only through Jesus' life, but also through his death. God's kingdom came not only through Jesus' life, but also, strangely and wonderfully, through his death. You see, throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he surprised a lot of people. But for those who were closest to him, nothing about his life was more surprising than his death, was more unexpected than his death. See, all historians pretty much agree that while many Jews in the first century were looking for, waiting for a Messiah, a Savior that God would send, none, not a single one, expected the, the Messiah to suffer and die. The Messiah was expected to defeat the Romans with a sword declaring the victory of God, not die on one of their crosses bemoaning the forsakenness of God. And yet this is exactly what happens to Jesus. Jesus was betrayed by a close friend and disciple of his. He was handed over to the Jewish leaders who put him on trial. They then handed him over to the Roman authorities who then executed Jesus on a Roman cross. The most shameful and excruciatingly painful death you could imagine in that day. Now, let me hit the pause button in the story for just a minute and ask a question. Why in the world, why in the world do we put crosses on our walls? Why do we wear jewelry in the shape of a cross? Like, why do we tattoo crosses on our body? My, my freshman year geometry class I'll, in high school, I'll never forget, an atheist friend of mine, asked me, he saw I had a cross necklace. He's like, Michael, this makes no sense to me. Like you wearing that is, it would be like me wearing an electric chair on a necklace. What does this mean? And it's a great question. And it's one I don't think we think of enough. Why do we celebrate 
the cross. To answer this question, I want to draw our attention to Jesus' three final words before breathing his last breath. See, while on the cross, Jesus, right before dying, said these words. He said, it is finished. It is finished. See, for Jesus, Rome may have been an enemy, but Rome wasn't the enemy. Jesus believed that his battle, the battle that he had come to fight, wasn't against Rome, but rather was against the darker, ancient powers of sin, death, and evil itself. Those powers lurking behind Rome. This was Jesus' mission. And when he died on the cross, that work was completed. Nearly 20 years after Jesus' death, one of his followers, the Apostle Paul, who wrote about a quarter of what we call today the New Testament, he said this about the crucifixion of Jesus. And by the way, in all, within all of the literature we have from the ancient world, the only literature that speaks positively about a crucifixion is found in the New Testament. Listen to the Apostle Paul's words in Colossians 2. He said that he, that is God, forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See what to everyone else looked like, including Jesus' own followers, what to everyone else looked like an unfortunate end to an otherwise promising messianic career was actually the surprising victory of God over the forces of sin, death, and evil. In other words, sin with a capital S, this proclivity to put ourselves on the throne of our hearts, sin has put all of us, every human being, in a place of spiritual debt, which means we are all, in a sense, in need of forgiveness. And through his death on the cross, God in Christ has paid the debt that we owe. There's, there's this story uh, about Mayor LaGuardia. Does anyone know of Mayor LaGuardia? He was the mayor of New York City during the Great Depression. And, and Mayor LaGuardia established a reputation during a very, very difficult time of being with and for the common person. And so he would often spend time on the streets with people. And on one cold January night in 1935, Mayor LaGuardia relieved a judge of his post for the night, and he sat in, in his place. The very first case that came into the courtroom was an older woman in tattered clothes, and she was being charged with theft. Why? For stealing a loaf of bread. And, and the mayor looked at the woman, 
whom the shopkeeper was pressing charges against and wanted to make an example of. And he asked her, so is, is this true? Did you, did you steal the bread? And she said, yes, I did. And then he asked her why, and she, she shared that her daughter's husband had just left them, abandoned them, and she and her daughter and her grandchildren were hungry. The mayor looked at the woman and he said, ma'am, I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, the law is the law. And so you, you can choose. You can either pay a $10 fine, which was a lot of money in that day, or you can spend 10 nights in jail. And before he even finished reading the sentence, he was reaching into his pocket. He pulled out his wallet pulled out a $10 bill, and he paid the fine right then and there. Friends, this is the scandal of Christianity. That when we look at Jesus, when we look at the cross, we see a God who so loves us that he was willing to, to put himself in our place to pay a debt that we all owed, to take upon himself the weight of sin and evil, death itself, and by taking it upon himself, somehow exhausting it of its power. If you have any sort of an idea about who God is that does not have the cross smack dab at the center of it, that does not have grace smack dab at the center of it, that does not have self-sacrificial love smack dab at the center of it, it may be an idea about a God, but it's not the God that we find in the biblical story. It's not the God who is the God of Christianity, and it's not the God whom we see when we look at Jesus. Jesus' death was utterly unexpected. And yet, his death signaled the coming of God's kingdom. See, Jesus' life and Jesus' death were unexpected. However, nothing, nothing was more surprising to Jesus' followers than what happened next. See, in in the 100 years before Jesus' life and ministry, and in the 100 years following Jesus' life and ministry, there were many, many Jewish people, Jewish men, who claimed to be the Messiah. Many people made this claim, and there was a pattern that actually was established. Some Jewish man would, would... begin claiming to be the Messiah. He'd gather people around him, usually a very charismatic, dynamic individual. He got enough support preaching that God's kingdom had come. And then Rome got word of it, that this rebellion was starting. Sometimes they, th- this, this group of rebels would start the rebellion under the leadership of this, this Messiah. And Rome, if Rome did anything well, it was squash rebellious groups, right? They, they had this down to a science. And so this group would rebel against Rome. Rome would march into town and be like, where's the leader? Okay, there he is. Kill the leader. 
and the group would disband. So it's a very common pattern. And this happened every time, except for one instance. You see, after Jesus died, his disciples undoubtedly were devastated and undoubtedly thought that they must have in some way been duped, that they must have put all of their hopes and their trust in yet another failed Messiah. But then, a few days later, something happened. A spark was lit. And this, this, this discouraged, downtrodden group of people who had disbanded became energized. And they grew, and the flames spread. And eventually, within a few centuries, this group took over the Roman Empire. How do you explain this? See, three days after Jesus was killed, God raised him from the dead. And this is something that no one expected. And this means two things. This means, by God raising Jesus from the dead, that God was faithful. This means that he had kept his promise. If Jesus had never been raised from the dead, we would not be here today talking about Jesus. He would be one of a long list on a long list of failed messiahs. But because he rose Jesus from the dead, we see that God was faithful to fulfill his promises and that his death on the cross was so much more than a humiliating defeat. It was the victory of God. But secondly, by raising Jesus from the dead, what we see is that this was also a sign of the new creation because what God did for Jesus by raising him from the dead God one day will do for the entire creation, including anyone who today would believe this story. When Jesus first announced that the kingdom of God has come, he said, repent and believe the good news. Now, I, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear the word repent, that can be kind of a, an uncomfortable word, and it's unfortunate, I th even for me, as I think about it, I, what comes to mind is, is one of these street preachers with a sign, right? Turn or burn, repent. And it's so unfortunate because it's such a beautiful word. To repent means to come home. It means to turn. It means to change your mind. It means to start walking in a different direction. And this is the invitation. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God's kingdom has come. God has acted to forgive the sins of the world, to redeem humanity, to defeat evil, even death itself. And the invitation for everyone, including this morning, is to come home, to repent, to believe. And I, I want to invite you this morning, if... if Whatever your story, if, if the good news of Jesus, of a God who loves you so much, he was willing to die for you, is something that you've never actually responded to. You've never actually in your heart, in prayer, said yes to God. And I want to invite you this morning to believe the story.
to believe the good news, to give yourself, your very life, to God. I'd like to pray, but before I pray, I want to invite you to, to close your eyes and just listen to this quote from a man named Rankin Wilborn. Once upon a time, the king of the universe disguised himself as a baby. He grew up and did wonderful, beautiful things, fed thousands of people from one small lunchbox, calmed the storm by speaking to it, made sick and broken people well, and brought the dead back to life. Then in an act of heroic self-sacrifice, he let himself be killed. He died a gruesome death on a cross. The gospel is an enchanted story, hence our need for imagination. But it's not just a story. See, we love redemption stories because we were created to inhabit such a story. It is enchanted, but it is real. This story Jesus is writing as he makes all things new and invites us to see the world with new eyes. Father, help us in light of the good news of your kingdom, which has come in the life, death, and resurrection of your son. Help us to see this world through new eyes. Help us to live lives of joyful repentance and faith. Thank you, Father, for being faithful to the promise you made so long ago to bless the entire world. Thank you for what you've done on the cross because of your great love. Thank you that you have met us not with condemnation, but rather with grace and forgiveness. Please, please, Help us to draw near to you. Take down whatever barriers they may be in our hearts, in our minds, and help us to see you as you truly are and help us in faith to respond accordingly. We love you, Father, because you first loved us and we pray in your Son's name and by your Spirit. Amen.